Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Gigabit Mason, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm host, Craig Settles, and we're here um, several times a week helping folks understand how to get broadband into all the places it needs to be. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about, well, actually, we're going to talk a whole lot about broadband adoption. This is a very critical topic, particularly in um, in urban areas, as we try to close this digital divide between uh, low-income folks and the rest of the community. And for large cities in particular, this can be a daunting challenge as we try to work through um, a lot of uh, logistical issues and uh, technology issues and digital issues and so forth. And so today I wanted to bring in um, someone who has a pretty good handle on a lot of these issues can help us talk through a lot of the uh, the key things, do things, do things to, to avoid as communities tackle the broadband adoption issue. I have with today Aaron Rabakian, who is the Director of Government and Strategic Partnerships for the Urban Affairs Coalition in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And Philadelphia has a fairly high um, percentage of folks who are having difficulty getting connected, uh, are lacking in a certain level of, of computer and digital literacy, and the city received a fairly significant grant of part of the broadband stimulus program to help uh, to help attack you. And so Arun has been front and center in a lot of this effort. And so first off, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming on today. Hey, thanks, Craig, for having me. So let's, uh, wow, so many places to go, I'm not even sure where to start. Let's start with first uh, the Earth Affairs Coalition. You've been um, working pretty heavily, I think, what, in the last couple of years with them, getting ready to, to launch a, a series of digital inclusion activities? Yes, absolutely. We uh, we uh, joined uh, with a number of different groups in 2010 to apply in the second round of the National Telecommunication and Information Administration's uh, Broadband Opportunity uh, Technology Opportunity Program uh, to apply for a grant there. Uh, we convened a partnership uh, between the City of Philadelphia, Urban Affairs Coalition, Drexel University, and a number of different uh, community-based organizations ranging from the Free Library of Philadelphia to uh, grassroots drug and alcohol programs like One Day at a Time, to kind of groundbreaking and innovative uh, media justice organizations like the Media Mobilizing Project and uh, a number of other groups that have a tremendous experience uh, with different aspects of digital inclusion to bring together a coalition that uh, really reflected the nature of uh, Philadelphia's communities. Many of the things that are the most challenging in Philadelphia relate to some of its strengths. Uh, Philadelphia is a a city of neighborhoods, um, and as a city of neighborhoods, we have a a lot of folks who are deeply committed to where they live in the city, but they also don't really leave those places, and they don't explore further. So um, being a weak market city with this kind of character, it's a challenge to create citywide programming that can just be rolled out from the top down. Things have to really be uh, kind of seeded at the grassroots and kind of come up. And well, that was one of our major uh, thoughts when we were looking to uh, create a broadband inclusion program here in Philadelphia is how do we get deep into the neighborhoods where the people who are the least likely to be connected um, are and how do we find them and get them connected through the programming we're doing. So, so in a case like... Sorry, I mean, in a case like this, we have so many different communities uh, within the city limits. How do you get a handle on, like, first of setting the goal? You know, how do you, how do you unify a goal, uh, or how do you create a goal that unifies all these diverse populations? Right. So we, we, you know, we set a kind of a broader goal, which is that the goal of the partnership is to help eliminate the digital divide by enhancing and expanding uh, 
underserved communities' knowledge and access to the Internet so that they could acquire information about employment, education, health, community development, and that to use those pro to use the initiative to really open doors and make lives better by ultimately connecting people to the skills they need for better lives, better jobs, better education, and better you know better outcomes in their daily life. Um, and I think that that by having a broad banner like that, it really made it possible for people to unite around that. It's a big tent. Okay. And so now, we have. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Now I was just going to say that we have between the lead partners, we have another uh, set of about 16 managing partners, and then an additional group of over 35 organizations that are community partners that are connected to the project. So altogether, we've got 51 or community organizations that power the KeySpot program, which is the part of the Freedom Rings partnership. And uh, we offer 80 locations throughout the city for digital inclusion classes, training, et cetera, access. Mm -hmm. So I am a, you know, working in a large city, Chicago, New York, uh, you know, major metropolitan areas. What's the first step in pulling together a coalition that's diverse? Well, you know, in all honesty, I think that there uh that the coalition kind of came together around the opportunity for funding, to be honest. Um mm -hmm. in our case, there had been a series of different digital inclusion efforts, but um at a very grassroots community scale. And um and then Philadelphia, as you recall, is uh one of the cities that had uh a an attempt at municipal broadband immediately before mm -hmm. the BTOP money had come up. And so there was a good body of leadership. I mean, the folks who who, who uh, really shepherded and spearheaded the municipal broadband project were really significant leaders and really understood the importance of getting people connected. It just didn't happen to work in our city. Um, but there was a good basis of leadership and interest around the issue. And the programming ultimately with the funding really was what uh anchored the formation of this kind of a broad uh partnership to take on the digital divide so in, in retrospect it's basically the effort the wireless network had already put together or call it a coalition of parties and that's what you were able to tap into then put together the proposal for the, the funding. In part, in part, they were a significant contributor. That the coalition around the community wireless uh wireless Philadelphia was a significant contribution of both leadership and constituents to the coalition that we pulled together. The coalition was also uh brought together from a few other groups. Uh one is that there was a local telecom uh, that is a boutique uh, provider to the public housing here in Philadelphia, uh, Wilco Electronics. They had a interesting project um, since the, one of the peculiarities of Philadelphia is that the the population that lives in the Philadelphia po uh, Housing Authority's units are uh, it's kind of a closed system that there aren't there isn't any cable provision in there. You can get DSL um, and and but you can't get cable internet in there. So that was an underserved mm -hmm. population. Um, and that group, uh, Wilco Electronic Systems, had actually done a really fantastic job of getting PHA, the Philadelphia Housing Authority, and Drexel University and, and Community College of Philadelphia to do one of the major aspects of the program. Um, and it was a re and, and Bridget Daniel, to her credit, um, she is, uh, you know, she's a, was a real, uh, had a lot of vision around this question and she's now on the, FCC's uh, diversity in um, in the digital age commission uh, mm -hmm. dealing with the issues that minority communities face in the digital age. So she's really, you know, she's she's uh, was a real key contributor early on in the in the project uh, around the thinking of it. And uh, and so to answer your question, you know, there there was that coalition. There was the Digital Justice Coalition around the wireless Philadelphia stuff. And then our coalition attracted, there's about three groups that were a member of uh, the Urban Affairs Coalition that um, were uh, experienced in doing digital literacy training that came to the mm -hmm. table as well. So 
was there any kind of issue sort of defining the roles and defining who was going to, you know, lead and be responsible as far as the, the coordination? Because I would imagine that when you get so many diverse entities together, on one hand, you have a mission and a vision that pulls people together, but you also have daily operating issues and so forth that can, you know, serve as distractions. Was there any particular challenge in in um, in holding this coalition together and moving forward? Yeah, you know, I think that you know the work of 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 creating and cultivating and sustaining a coalition isn't easy. There's, I mean, anyone who's done that work, you know, I think you've really, you know, your question is uh, spot on in the sense that, you know, anybody who's been involved with bringing lots of different people together around a common interest, that can be challenging. And, um, you know, I think that we faced our own real challenges there because we have, you know, a number of different types of organizations, organizations of different size. Uh, you know, we have people from the government at the table, people from uh, you know, universities and community groups, some of which only have budgets of, you know, less than $500,000 at the start of the project and other ones that have budgets of, you know, upwards of $30 million, $15 million. So there's, there is uh, those kinds of challenges. And then also I think the coalition came together thinking that we would all be kind of a coalition of where everybody had their role at the table and I think one of the challenges for us as a, as kind of the lead on the uh, on one of the grants was that the reality is when you get federal funding they expect one group to be responsible for all of the outcomes for all of the subrecipients of the grant and um that is what you sign on to in terms of the terms and conditions with the Department of Commerce or any other federal funding and um that means that you have to be the one that is responsible for making sure everything happens and so, you know, you mm -hmm. do come into bumps in the road, but, you know, ultimately I think if people look at the overall benefit of what happens to the community and, uh, you know, where they kind of might feel like they need their voice to be heard or their leadership to be felt, they can find a way to make it fit in a paradigm where there 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 are, by necessity, you know, rules and funding, and you have to kind of just, uh, you know, you kind of have to organize yourself to deal with, uh, the you know the lay of the land, and I think that people did a good job of that. I think people came and rallied around uh, the work and focused on the work instead of focus on the me 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 stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you have, were to give maybe two pieces of advice for someone that is starting this process of creating coalitions across a fairly you know, a large, fairly urban landscape, what would those pieces be? Right. So, you know, I think that those pieces are, again, to your first point, that working with others is often challenging, but there are many benefits to building collaborations and that people should be aware of what the elements of a good collaboration are beyond just the opportunity for funding. And they are that you have to have a shared vision, you have to have some common goals, and you have to have clear roles. And when you have that, they all that collaboration with those three elements has to also be rooted in a real value-add proposition for the community. So that means mm -hmm. that the community has to be able to get better access or larger opportunities uh, to have a service or uh, you know some uh, you know some real outcome. You have to be able to improve efficiency by having a bigger scale, or you have to be able to show that you are reducing duplication of services or administrative expenses, or that you can have a stronger outcome or a more comprehensive approach to solving the problem. And you know, this by nature, I think the federal government funding streams uh, force you to have somewhat of a vertical collaboration, like a vertical monopoly, where one group is in charge and everybody kind of has to work through that group to get what they need done. But I would encourage groups, if they are going to go into collaborations like that, to, to set up a to set up their collaboration before they get funding, so that they all have defined what they're going to do and really set up a more horizontal collaboration that is focused on getting um, nonprofits, government, uh, academia, philanthropy, and corporations at the table to solve the question of digital inclusion because you need all of those actors. Um, at the table uh, in order to really get a comprehensive, uh, you know, citywide urban solution to a problem that is seemingly as intractable as the one we're facing.
<laughs> so does that mean that if I'm hearing you right, you start with something uh, resembling a vertical hierarchical structure that then flattens out as you move forward? I think that'll end up becoming what we do here in Philadelphia. I actually think that if you have a horizontal structure to start off with, then you can kind of build your verticals with clarity and clear roles and and responsibilities and relationships. Um, I think what happens is it's harder to go from vertical to horizontal in in networks that's that's very challenging. I think that once you have if you have a very strong partnership that is kind of broad and a, a partnership of equals, then you can act like from a strategic perspective to take on roles and and you can maintain that kind of a relationship. Um, you know, the the cons on that are, you know, that it takes a lot more work and um you know, and and when you have a horizontal relationship, there's a lot more internal competition between actors for position, for um, for money, for all kinds of stuff. And horizontal partnerships don't necessarily produce um, wide-scale projects very easily either. It's really hard when you don't have some command and control to really deliver a wide-scale project. You can do a series of, in my my experience, it's, it might be easier to do a whole series of kind of sister projects that are all kind of same size all over the place where it doesn't feel that competitive. But I think when you're talking about scale, you need do need some hierarchy. Mm-hmm. That's um, hmm. that's an interesting uh, process. I mean, does this sort of learn over time, or did you kind of go into from the beginning understanding that this was the best structure to use? I think we just we we <laughs> we didn't get to this place over time. We kind of it was more of like a bit of a shotgun wedding um, because the. <laughs> the the way that that we were brought into the inclusion uh or for for the proposals was uh there was a first round proposal that wasn't successful and the group that didn't uh that led that process didn't wish to lead it again mm-hmm. and so they they uh, so the coalition of uh, some of the coalition uh came to us and said hey you're the right kind of organization to lead something like this and they were you know it's it's really well within our capacities to do that kind of work so we took it on, and we're successful in receiving the funding. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're being deliberate and you're kind of constructing your own path, it would be best to have a horizontal partnership, which kind of covered a number of different strength areas, including people who have strength in kind of policy work, people who are really connected in the corporate world, people who are really um, that do research. So universities are great for that, like. Uh, research, uh, the, re- universities could be really helpful in terms of technology, research and evaluation, and policy. Mm-hmm. You know, we ha- we have our fantastic technology university, Drexel University here, which has a uh, you know their president has uh, um, positioned it to be the most civically engaged university in the country. Um, with that kind of a social mission, they've been a fantastic partner to have at the table. And then we have a variety of different uh social service and community based organizations, but it's you know I think that you know having the diversity of a coalition that's horizontal horizontal when you have to start to look at these opportunities um you know you at least you have the clarity of what all the relationships are and uh you can actually build your network capacity so when you see an opportunity, you can pull the right types of partners rather than just scrambling to figure out how to get everything to go. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's shift a little bit and go to specifics. What types of projects are part of this coalition's effort to um, uh, decrease the divide, increase inclusion, and uh, and also increase uh, computers? And, um, so the so if I can just go systematically through it, we have. These 16 managing partners, of which they uh, all serve a variety of different constituencies. The largest section of them is really the public housing, um, the folks doing the public housing work through Drexel University. Uh, Drexel University um, has a, um, they were the leaders around the 
a special program that's within our partnership. So if I were to kind of give you a broad, overarching, uh, short punch list of what we're supposed to do, is that we're supposed to launch uh, over 77 public computing centers. We're supposed to train 15,000 people with over 200,000 hours of training. We're supposed to do a public information campaign that reaches uh, 75,000 Philadelphians, and we're supposed to create a portal uh, that kind of sews it all together. And then uh, within that, uh, going back to that 15,000, of that 15,000, 5,000 are to be public housing residents who earn a net book through a sweat equity, digital literacy, workforce-oriented training program. So Drexel University leads that particular effort with the laptop program. They've done a fantastic job with it. They uh, brought on the Community College of Philadelphia to actually execute the actual training. They have been working with uh, closely with the Public Housing Authority. Um, so far, they've uh, distributed uh, over 2,000 netbooks to public housing residents who've been completing these programs. I mean, one of the one of the best uh, stories that we have is uh, uh, a woman. Uh, that uh, she came to the, she had never really used a computer before, um, and she came to the, through this program, and uh, she not only learned how to use a computer, but um, she, you know, has received a netbook, and uh, um, you know, it's, it's a fantastic thing for her in terms of her uh, family and her community because I think that for a lot of people they uh, they don't necessarily have the opportunity to share their accomplishments. So the, the the nice thing about the Drexel program is they have a great graduation where everybody comes and they, they show off the netbooks and they get a certificate and you know it's it's a it's a real important thing for people who may feel like they haven't achieved all they want in their life to get that kind of public recognition. Mm-hmm. Um and how has progress I mean, the money was, uh, forget the actual start date, like when you guys actually received your award. Yeah, we received the award um, in September, uh, on September 13, 2010. And so in that time, we've, you know, we've accomplished quite a bit. Um, If I could just give you some top-level statistics around it, we have... We'll take those. uh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, uh you know, those are the kind of the, those are the goodies, right? Um so right. you know, for us uh in the last uh we really got cooking in uh in by September of last year with all the implementation really being in place. And so if we did some stuff, but we we were at scale uh mm-hmm. as of September of last year. And so since the beginning of the project and uh up until this these numbers are uh good from uh from the end of March of this year 2012 we launched 70 key spots uh offering 213 I mean 813 workstations across Philadelphia we provided over 108,000 hours of training to 10,000 people we've served uh 109,000 people through free computer access um we distributed uh, 1,774 uh, netbooks as of March, and they distributed another 300 or so last month, so we're at over 2,000 now. The project created or saved thir- 113 jobs, and we reached uh, the, you know, the, the neighborhoods and communities with about 4.1 million uh, broadband awareness impressions. So... And we did that through a pretty comprehensive uh, branding campaign and public uh, campaign uh, to promote our key spots, which are our public computing centers mm-hmm. uh, on the bus on the buses, about, bus shelters. Ah, uh, okay. Didn't jump. Let me. Let's. Uh, the thing that caught my interest that I wanted to get on before my feeble mind left me here was uh, the economic <laughs> development part, dealing specifically with jobs. Let's talk about that some, in some detail. What was the impact again on the, on the jobs creation or retention, and how do you track, you know, your efforts to those outcomes? So the the job creation number is one thirteen, uh, for either saved or created in the region. Um, that that's a number that's kind of calculated against a, a, a you know, a, there's a formula that you crank that through. So and then you check it against 
you check it against the actual jobs that you have that you know that people are having. Um, and so there's a combination of both direct and indirect jobs through the direct employees of the program and then the indirect jobs created by the economic impact of spending that much money doing all of the various things you're doing. So um, that, that's how that's calculated. I know that for, for us, you know, personnel is, is by far and away is the, the largest expenditure is really, you know, and that's part of our strategy too. We know that, you know, you li- we live in a city where people have not used the Internet. It's going to be people who make the difference. It's going to be people basically, you know, catching, you know, you know the the seniors who are coming off the public uh, transportation and walking them into the center and showing them how to use the computer. You know, it's it's going to be people who, when you when you're stuck on the you know particular exercise that have walk you through it. That really our our whole strategy has been a boots on the ground strategy to make sure that we have um, all of the various uh, people um, that we you know that are needed to make sure that everybody has somebody who is uh there to help them uh you know navigate the the difficult aspects of you know doing the work. Mhm. And so I assume that by virtue of how the program is structured, how the BTOP program is structured that you are given the the parameters to measure the outcomes and the track and measure the outcomes. Wait, I, I, can you say that again, please? So I'm assuming that given the nature of how the BTOP programs were uh, constructed and are being managed, right. that you have parameters for tracking and measuring your success. Yeah, we do. We have an evaluation plan that's uh, that's uh, been developed by the New America Foundation. And that we've been mm-hmm. tracking uh, numbers on our quarterly and annual reports to the NTIA about mm-hmm. our progress and reporting those out. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. That must uh, <laughs> that must keep a lot of people uh, up at night dealing just with the math at all. Yeah, you know, I think that the the thing is that we have a big network. It's not all us. So mm-hmm. you know, people. Uh, we New America. Foundation developed a um, a really best in class uh, kind of data collection tool that matches right up against the reporting requirements for the for the mm-hmm. BTEP program, mm-hmm. and um, our partners were all trained on how to use that and how to calculate. I mean, how to capture their data on a regular basis so that they uh, so that this uh, data system that New America built could uh, roll up the numbers and kind of crank out the reports. Because that is a lot of work um, to capture on a daily basis, and you have lots of different people being employed through the project, and um, you know, and and there's you know changes in staff, and having a unified data system to capture the data, and that would then serve as a repository for evaluation purposes afterwards. It was a very mm-hmm. uh, strong strategy for us, and I and uh, subsequently, I think we've really benefited from having that kind of uh, attention and effort. Mm-hmm. You know that definitely uh, that seems helpful. Now, for communities that don't have the benefit of the BTOP program and the BTOP structure, what are some ways, or how do you set up a process by which you uh, track and measure the effectiveness of this? Well, I think that you know um, what might be the best thing to do is to start small to find a place where you can figure out the questions of how do you do this work and and to take I mean the BTOP work nationally has generated a tremendous amount of expertise resources lessons learned and there are and I found that the network of people the leaders that are around the country who are in the trenches doing the work are have been more than willing to on a regular basis uh, fulfill any request to learn about what they're doing and, and kind of help out. So if people are in a place in the country where there is a BTOP program, particularly one, I think you're referring mostly to this kind of PCC and SBA projects, mm-hmm. the Sustainable Broadband Adoption Projects and the Public Computing Center Projects, to reach out to their local program. They have a lot of experience, and I think that there is a fair amount of uh, you know a willingness to share and to kind of encourage the field to move forward. 
Mm-hmm. So you said they should um, get in touch with whatever may be the closest uh, VTOP PCC program that's going on and ask questions. I mean, just your basic, you know, research 101, I guess. Yeah, well, do your homework, right? That's always the first rule. Right. And um, there's a number of different really great publications around, you know, this this work of, of setting up public computer centers and doing computer training is, um, you know, a, a, you, you know, it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, this stuff has been going on since the CTC movement in the 90s. Um, around the world and the ITC movement and the telecenter commute, I mean, uh, movement, that there's been writing from anywhere from like Taiwan to India, you know, Canada to um, Singapore, all over the United States on how digital inclusion works, you know, and what are strategies to do it. And I think that in particular, one piece of um, one piece of literature that is really, I think, was helpful for us is. Um, Microsoft put out a couple different um, uh, kind of books on the experience of people who had done kind of grassroots coalition building around digital inclusion um, that are available online. Um, and maybe what I'll do is I'll I'll, I'll tweet them to you later okay. on. But one of them is called uh, "Innovating for Inclusion," and the other one is uh, "Roadmap for Digital Inclusion." Mm-hmm. and they're they're really they're really two great uh pieces that come from very different vantage points one is from like a governmental perspective of why why should a community look at the question of digital inclusion as a strategy for um economic development and growth and kind of um you know helping uh people advance and then the other one is for leaders who are much more like people who are your your question is directed to community members who want to figure out how to get a digital inclusion strategy for their community to yeah. uh, figure the way forward. I would just say, just because I have my a lot of background in organizing, I think as mm-hmm. soon as you get interested, you want to go out there and reach out to other people you know might be interested too. This isn't something that can be done by one person, one organization, or one um, one sector in the community. It has to be a cross-sector collaboration to be effective. That is very um, that's very interesting. I didn't realize that uh, that Microsoft was in in that particular way. Um, do you recall like which line, what kind of lines they drew between? Digital inclusion and economic development, because I know there are people out there who, at least in their comments, their public comments, don't seem to see a connection. You know, people who are critical of programs and so forth, uh, you know, the simple program, you know, will seem to brush off the the fact that this has an economic development impact. But from your perspective and maybe Microsoft's perspective, what's the what's tie? How does that tie happen? Around economic development, well, digital inclusion as a as a roadmap or a way to get to economic development. Sure. So I think that what people are seeing is that the modern workforce. And let me just speak from my perspective and from Philadelphia, from a Philadelphian perspective, uh, Philadelphians perspective, because you know I can't speak for what Microsoft is seeing around the world, but I can see mm-hmm. what we see here. I can say what we see here. Uh, you know, Philadelphia is it was primarily a transportation and service industry kind of town. We did manufacturing. We did, you know, we were, the, you know, some t- one time we were the workshop of the world kind of place. You know. Um, and all of that changed with the information revolution. So all of a sudden, you need all these knowledge workers that Philadelphia hasn't historically generated. Mm-hmm. And so, for and so, you know, in Philadelphia, you have tremendous economic pressure uh, coming from at, at the low-income, unskilled worker bracket. Uh, there mm-hmm. are probably thirty thirty-six percent of the jobs in Philadelphia are for unskilled workers, but nearly fifty-two percent of the people are unskilled. So you have almost like a, you know, an, a really uncomfortable pressure for every job that isn't a skilled job. At the same time, even though 24% of the jobs are skilled and 24% of the jobs are professional jobs, we only have enough to fill two-thirds of each of those brackets slots in terms of employment. So there's underemployment in the knowledge worker category, and then in the unskilled worker category, there's 
uh, I mean, not underemployment. There's 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 a there's a gap in terms of how many people we have to fill those jobs, and then there's an opportunity gap at the place for people who don't have skills. So digital inclusion as a strategy for getting people the skills they need in the digital age allows people to jump into skilled jobs with some basic training and education. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't really yeah. tackle the question of literacy, which is one of the biggest questions that remains to be answered in Philadelphia, is how do we address the literacy and the education gap. But it does address some of the pieces that we're talking about. Right. So it's um Wow. So some days this whole thing really overwhelms me because there are so there there seem to be people so far behind the curve or communities so far behind the curve that it's really difficult to see a way forward. I mean I've I've talked to people involved with, with communities where there's forty percent unemployment. I mean forget about right. not having access to the internet. But just uh, people are totally out of work, and and all the right. industries have moved on. And how do you, um, you know, how do you address that? And then people are, you know, some folks in those communities are saying, you know, we can use broadband to get there. And some days, you know, as much of a believer as I am, I still have moments of doubt, saying, well, how exactly is that going to work when you have so, you know, so it seems so little to work with. I think that's right. I think that, yeah, I think that the there's a you know that the digital inclusion work that we've done is not um, how do you say it isn't really the by itself the solution. Um, what I think that the way that it's best understood is that it's actually the infrastructure for getting at the solution. So making sure that there's places that you know. You're never going to have a digitally literate workforce unless you have, um, unless you ha- your city or your region or your country has adopted a universal broadband adoption mission. That there mm-hmm. needs to be the sense across the community that everyone, uh, res- you know, with, uh, without respect to their income status or their ethnicity or their gender or whatever, should have access to the available means of communication at a quality level. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, for us, I think that that is really critical, that there is this sense that there is a real um, community-wide mission around it. And then the second thing I think becomes really critical is that people have a way to plug in. So I think that one of the things that we're learning now is that there are a lot more people interested in getting people connected uh, than we ever thought. And the only reason we found that out is because we did this large project and kind of galvanized a community to look at the question. You know, our mayor, uh, Michael Nutter, you know, recently was quoted saying, you know, we're coming together to build the nation's most comprehensive community-based effort to close the digital divide. And I think it's true. And um, and, and I think it is when he says, that I think the key word there is it's a community-based effort. It can't be... Um, you know, any one group or any one set of people, it has to be across the whole community. So I think then, I think then, once you add beyond that kind of universal, uh, you know, adoption mission, there has to be a place for everybody at the table. There has to be a place for the telecoms at the table, since they're the providers of the services, where they can, you know, figure out strategies with you to get uh, access to low-income families. Um, there has to be kind of access. I mean, because ultimately, you know, broadband adoption, the standard for broadband adoption in, in our mind here is a trained person with a computer in their home with broadband. You know, you have to have all four of those elements. And then anything before that is kind of a stepping stone, right? Um, mm-hmm. And for some, you know, so the key spots are public computing centers are great because they can acclimate people to using the Internet and getting connected. Um, but... You know, um, it's you know. So I think it's really great, but um, we we also have to focus on trying to get people in home access, because that's where mm-hmm. the the impact is on children and families when people are doing homework, when they're doing their work stuff, uh, when they're just when they're starting to use it for everything it can be used for as a natural function of daily life. Mm-hmm. And so those are the great steps trying to move this thing 
um, move this thing forward. Now, and I think another one of the myths I have written about this several times, actually, is that there seems to be this assumption that if you live in a large metal area, by default, you have broadband. Is this true <laughs> or not? <laughs> that if you live in an urban area, you have broadband? Right. Well, you know, the FCC data on Philadelphia is pretty clear on that. So um, if I can just share with you a little bit of uh, what, what it said from the 2010 census, um, what we found was that uh, in the 2010 census, the data is available. I can send you the link to that, too. Um, so the data is that in Philadelphia, 43% of, of whites subscribe to broadband, 43.5, actually, uh, Twenty. I mean, forty-seven point, forty-two point seven percent of African Americans, eleven percent of Latinos, and of households with incomes below the poverty level, it's twenty-two point three percent. And that's based on the combination of demographic data that was accumulated by the investigative working uh, reporting workshop uh, mm -hmm. using FCC four seven seven data and the U.S. Census American Community Survey data. So it's not a fairly uh, robust, august picture of what is connectivity. I think people, when they, when you're talking, when, that question is interesting because it really refers to um, the unserved in the sense of geographically where there is actually no broadband to be found in rural areas versus mm -hmm. the underserved, which is places where there's high broadband uh, availability but low penetration in terms of adoption and use. Right. But I would contend that in urban areas, it's not a question of access, it's a question of the quality of the access. And that's where a lot of urban areas, especially low-income urban areas, that's where they're getting through. It's the lack of quality of their access. Right. Am I off the mark there on them? Oh, I didn't hear the last thing you said. I'm sorry. No, no, so it, you know, my my assessment has been that um, it's not a question of access. People could have access, but the poor quality of access that defines broadband in many of the low-income urban areas. I'm just am I off the mark in that assessment? Well, no, there, there, you know, there. It's not even that. I would say, in terms of when you say quality, I would say affordability is probably a major factor in that and then the perception of the need to use it. So the affordability question, I think, like, for, you know, um, in Philadelphia, there are probably three really um, accessible low-income programs. Um, so, you know, first is the Comcast Internet Essentials Program, which if people have school-aged children and free and reduced lunch, they can apply. Um, mm -hmm. And that you know, that is a real option for people. And, and in Philadelphia, I think that is the highest quality, lowest cost program available to people, especially with that uh, $150 netbook. The second option is uh, if for people who are already Verizon subscribers, they can add broadband to their s subscription. And I'm not talking about wireless, but I'm talking about home phone use. Mm -hmm. their, uh, you know, they can add for $15, they can add broadband to their to their daily use, you know. Um, and mm -hmm. then the third one is that we're actually working with the, the aforementioned uh, Wilco Electronic Systems and um, uh, Clear's kind of philanthropic arm, Mobile Citizen, to uh, unveil a 4G wireless, uh, you know, mobile broadband solution for community members at a $15 a month rate. So I think that those are three options in urban communities for people who typically can't afford it. And, and but you know I think the reality is is that some places you know you're not going to get the FiOS because FiOS hasn't been wired in all, you know throughout the city. Um, you could get Comcast. Yeah, uh, there are other providers like Covad and and whatnot. But um, for the most part, I think that the income issue is uh, the income and whether people see it's relevant to daily life or what they would use it for are probably the principal barriers. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I think. If I play devil's advocate for a minute, you know, one of the more common pushbacks from people who really oppose these programs is, you know, $30 a month. Who can't afford $30 a month? And 
I mean, how fair is that as a as a criticism or a pushback? Well, I guess when people say who can't afford thirty dollars a month, the question is, is that who would spend thirty dollars a month on something that they don't necessarily know what the value of it is, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, and people spend thirty dollars a month regardless of their income on things that are useless or or maybe hurt them all the time. You know, so you know, I think one of the key questions is how do we you know, I mean, sure, for some people that, you know, you know, financial management and financial literacy and 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 using your money in the right way could make um many of these things much more affordable to them if they spent a little bit less money on something else and a little bit more money on getting broadband. Um, you know, I I I I you know, I can't say that there isn't any validity in the statement. I think that the to have that statement kind of be a blanket statement about how people um, access the internet or choose to purchase it uh, misses some of the real critical factors about the consumer behavior and the relevance and importance in daily life. Mm-hmm. So, so let's explore the the whole question of people not understanding the value. Is it is that maybe people's fear of the technology? Um, because it seems like if you look around, you can see. And maybe this is my bias. That if you look around, you can see the benefit of the technology. Is that very low-income community? I mean, when they look around and see broadband, what do they see? Sure. So I think that what, for a lot of people, they actually don't use technology in the way that people um, might popularly think they. You know, they just don't use it. They don't use it in their jobs. They don't use it at. Um, they don't. Their kids don't. Uh, use it regularly on school to the point where they're asking for it at home. That they are not acquainted with what the, they think that maybe the data plan they have and the limited use that they have on their cell phone is the internet, and that they actually have really an incredibly limited exposure to what it is, how to use it, and what to do with it. I think another key factor is that men in a city like Philadelphia with a serious literacy and education gap that many people are uncomfortable with accessing information in whatever format it might be presented to them in. That the main form of information that they have access to is uh they are you know, is material that is written at a less than eighth grade level or, you know, even lower, or that they're kind of kind of communicated to them verbally and that using technology to access information is something that is not easy for them at all. And that people need to have some kind of coaching and training and basic digital, um, you know, literacy is built on, um, you know, to have some basic literacy work done with them to build upon those skills, uh, some digital literacy skills. But, you know, digital literacy, I mean, using technology to teach literacy is kind of some of the cutting-edge stuff that people are doing in the city right now to try to really reach the scale of um, of the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, the Mayor's Commission on Literacy is uh, using technology to do just that, to help people learn how to read while they learn how to use a computer. Because there's mm-hmm. many things. You know, there's plenty of children. You've seen them. You know, they're, they're, they're three years old, and they're playing on their mom and dad's uh, iPad or cell phone, Right. So mm-hmm. you can know how to use a device without actually knowing how to read, right? True, so it, it gives people an engaging tool to kind of start to really, you know, figure out how to do some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, there was a question flipped in here for a second in my brain. Um, the the literacy coming, I guess, coming back to the you know viewing um, why. Uh, Broadband necessity. Um, with the emphasis by some of the larger companies on smartphones and wireless, are are they doing low-income folks a disservice by basically saying you know, an iPhone is the Internet, where anyone who's in any kind of professional business, you know, anyone who runs the business, realizes that the, the smartphone is an extension of applications, but it is not how you get, you know, it's how you run business. It's not how you manage your, you know, financial aspects of your business, right? But but, but I think there's this marketing campaign that basically has made 
smartphone, the internet. Number one, is assumption true, do you think? And does it do a disservice to low-income people? I think that people. Um, I guess the I guess the question I if I heard your question correctly is that are low income folks is 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 the perception from low income folks that that the mobile access they have is the internet um, and I think that in large numbers that is how people uh, particularly uh, low income folks and people of color um, are are using the, uh, what they on their mobile devices the internet that they are using is that they think that's its capacity and for any of you. Uh, your listeners or uh, you know folks who who use their phone as vigorously as uh, I do I can do a lot on my phone but at the same time if I didn't have any basic comprehension of what all could be done it would be much more limited for sure mhm you know and i think that people don't know we we you know in the training programs we have people do classes on how to use your phone mhm you know to, to gain information, they do you know classes on how do you sign up for broadband. They do all kinds of things, but um, yeah, I do think that there is a common misperception that that the, the internet is um, not what it really is in the reality, you know, of how broad and how scoping its impact is. And I think that people access it for a very limited range of things that um, you know could really circumscribe their understanding of what's possible. How do you combat that at a community level? You know, because I mean, th this is this is a this is a sticking point for me. I mean, I look at um, I look at all the marketing, all the rhetoric that says, you know, we need more spectrum because poor people need virus, and we need to have less regulation because you know we need that more poor folks, low income people get wireless because wireless is the future. And I look at these, and I look at the whole of the internet. Look at kids that you know have, you know, full access to full-on computing technology. I feel like you know this is this is unfair. This is wrong in some way. Um, that we are going in for changing our our low-income folks unless somebody steps in, put wireless and put smartphones into some kind of proper perspective. That's my soapbox moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to take your soapbox moment away from you, but I uh, I will say that um, I will say that um, with any with any tool, regardless of um, you know what it might be, people have to know how to use it. Right. And that's where you really get that's where you get your your big impact is when people know how to use the tool in an effective way. And that's you know that's the real driver, and so um you know people probably at the time when at the time of the printing press there were there were people who really believed that people should not read because they felt as though that they would do dangerous things with that information, and in fact, you know we're a better world for it, you know, so I think that uh you know a more connected a more literate a more transparent world probably works to the benefit of everyone. And in particular, when when we're talking at times of like reduced budgets and, and less money going around, the Internet is one of the most cost-effective ways to distribute information to any number of people on any topic that you can imagine. And that if that means that people can uh, really uh, improve themselves in their lives and, and get education either independently or through, you know, online efforts or whatever, then there you know, there is going to be downsides to that, but the upsides are much greater, I think. Mhm. Mm so, um we have about 5 minutes or so let's talk about what are a few of your biggest adoption wins to date? Has been plugging away a while, you know, for a while, you got a lot of stuff going on. Let's let's rattle off some success stories. I mean, the, you know, really fun ones in your mind. In terms of success stories, I would say, um, you know, we have uh, we've done a lot with uh, getting uh, access to people who otherwise wouldn't have access. Um, for example, 
Uh, there's a great story from one of our programs where a grandmother, uh, who is a North Philadelphia resident, grandmother of 23, she, she, uh, you know, she learned how to use the the com- she learned how to use the computer after some encouragement from her son. Now uh, she went to one of our key spots that's uh, at the in North Philadelphia at a location called uh, One Day at a Time, a drug and alcohol recovery center that has an open computer lab to the public. And uh, she, you know, her son, I guess her son lives in Connecticut, and he said that he would buy her a computer if she took the classes because he wanted to be able to stay in touch with her. Mm-hmm. And, she, you know, she was saying, you know, everybody in my family knows how to use the computer. And so, you know, that after learning how to use the computer, she's now able to stay connected with her family. And, and um, you know, it, it means a lot to her. Um, there was a uh, another another story is at one of our sites uh, a man who had been uh, had lost touch with one of his children many years ago actually found her on the internet through Facebook and reconnected with his child. Wow. You know, um, so you know, and then you know we have the other stories of people you know getting trained and being able to apply for jobs and getting them, and uh, you know students who. Uh, you know, have attended you know the trainings at our uh, key spots and becoming better students in uh, you know in school and learning how to use uh, Microsoft Word and Office in ways that they haven't necessarily been able to uh, you know opportunities they haven't had in the past and uh, we got some really great stuff that's going on with the public libraries where they're using a tech mobile and they're taking it to centers that don't have computers there and kind of uh, doing a mobile hotspot. Uh, there, so that the centers can kind of do some broadband adoption work and get people online, and uh, you know, I, I think that you know, there, there's, you know, we've served, you know, tens of thousands of people, and uh, and uh, I think that we're giving people a lot of confidence that they can do more um, with the technology than they could before. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the way, do you have uh, a stat on number of people trained? that have gone into a, a job of some sort as a result of training? You know, I wish I had that. The evaluators are capturing stuff like that right now. I'll be looking forward to hearing uh, back from them what some of those outcomes were. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this, uh, you know those, are, those are great stories, and I, I'm sure that we'll have definitely some of those uh, to share as we go further through the project. Okay. Great. Well, we're going to wrap up here in a second. Um, it's interesting. I got a comment from across the pond there over in the UK. Uh, one of my uh, listeners uh, talks about uh, how uh, tablet computers are they're finding uh, to be very effective because they have a short learning curve and a simple machine. And her her word of advice is that you know, we need to be giving people a simple to use machines in order to bridge that gap between, you know, zero literacy and, uh, you know, full-on literacy and, you know, program skills and all that. But to give people simple simple operating machines seems to be a, a, a definitely plus in the battle for uh, digital inclusion. And I, I definitely think we'd all agree with that. Are you, are you finding that I- the case? Yeah, I agree. I was actually uh, – we actually had a meeting today with the folks from Apple – and one of the stories I shared was, you know, um, my mother, who is in her, uh, I won't say her age, but she's old enough to be my mother. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm 38, <laughs> so you can imagine. Uh, and there you she, go. you know, she, uh, she saw the iPad and she, uh, she fell in love with it and she wanted to use it. She's not, she wasn't somebody who used the computer a whole lot. She knew how to use it, but she wasn't a user, per se. She's on the iPad all the time now. And I think it was a real entry point because it had the accessibility features. Uh, she didn't have to wear glasses to look at it and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, my nephew, who is 18 months old, one of the words he knows is iPad, iPad, right? Uh, well, so he, right. he will ask for the iPad, and he knows how to unlock it, and he knows how to find his you know, sing-song games, and he, he like listens to the music and, and kind of rocks back and forth and gets down. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that that is a real case that, you know, sometimes inclusion needs to include strategies where people are met where they're at with things that are of their interest and at the level that they can appreciate and then use that as a stepping stone to get further. So for folks who are, you know, low literate, 
there are I, I know that I don't know if there's apps. We we actually in Philadelphia there's an organization, a great organization, Philadelphia Academies, that uses this kind of adapted uh, adaptive learning tool that takes news articles um, and kind of adjusts them for up. what you're. Sorry, right. right, Chris. Um, Ron, I'm going to have to call for about off the air, but thank you very much for being our guest today. It was my pleasure, and thank you for having me, Craig. You guys are doing a great thing with the Gigabyte Nation. Excellent.